and welcome to Women in Retail Talks, the podcast where C-suite executive women in the retail space share their stories of professional growth, leadership development, personal journeys, and more. I'm Marie Albajez, Senior Editor of Women in Retail, a membership-based community of executive women at leading retailers and brands. Today, I'm joined by Mecca Mitchell, the Senior Vice President and Chief DEI Officer of Burlington Stores, where she's responsible for leading efforts to create supportive and equitable institutional structures. I'm really excited to talk with Mecca about how she built her career around advocating for DEI, how retail leaders can ensure their employees are seen and heard, and how mentorship plays a role in her career. Mecca, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Marie. I'm delighted to be a part of these important conversations. So thank you. Yes, of course. Let's get right into it. So I'd love for you to start talking about um, some of the work that you do at Burlington. What are some of your major responsibilities? Sure. So, so as you said in the intro, I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Burlington. Um, we are, of course, a nationally recognized off-price retailer. We've got over 800 stores and a footprint that spans across 46 states in Puerto Rico. So lots of responsibilities. Um, and, and in essence, my job is to lead efforts to really create supportive environments for our associates, uh, make sure that our structures are equitable, that we look at equity across a spectrum of, um, of our enterprise and that we're fostering welcoming and inclusive environments for our customers. We want to make sure that as they interact and they come into our facilities that they see themselves reflected in everything from our products to the language that we use. And so cultivating a culture that really leverages not just you know, appreciates um, not just values, but really leverages diversity, inclusion, and equity best practices to help us drive our business, to help us meet our goals and objectives. And we can do that while also responding to the diverse needs of our associates, our customers, and the communities that we serve. So, you know, we like to say that we're an organization that's really uh, about fostering that culture of inclusion um, in everything that we do. And it's integrated throughout all the facets of our business. Mike, I hope you're not doing all of that by yourself. I'm assuming you have a great team that, that you can delegate some of those things to, because that is, that's a lot of work. Oh my goodness. Well, you know what? I, I, I often say nothing speaks to commitment like resource allocation. And I have the benefit of coming to an organization. When I came to Burlington, I had uh, leaders who said to me, what is it you need? What are the resources we need to bring to bear to help support this work? Because we recognize how significant it is. We recognize the role that DE&I appropriately leverage plays in the future of our organization. And so very quickly, I was able to build up a team uh, that really does help support this work across the enterprise, from merchandising to corporate, to stores and distribution centers, to our community. And so I, I am very fortunate that we've got a great team and they're really doing great work. That's great. I'm fascinated to hear a little bit about how you learned all of this. I know you weren't always in retail. So can you tell me a little bit about the start of your career? I know you started in law and you've gone into different industries since then and how that has really led to your work as a DEI advocate now at Burlington. Absolutely. So, so people who know me well kind of ask that question all the time because my career path has definitely been non-linear. So I began practicing law. I was an assistant district attorney in Manhattan where I did 
everything from sex crimes to violent crimes to domestic violence and child abuse cases. And I really, really enjoyed that work. Um, but what I really enjoyed more than being a lawyer, the title, was I enjoyed being an advocate. I enjoyed fighting for, for crime victims in that role and making sure that they got justice. That same measure of advocacy followed me throughout my career um, when I had the opportunity to take over and run the civil rights office for the New York City Department of Education. In that case, and that was a mammoth organization, the largest school system in the country, but instead of being an advocate for crime victims, I got to be an advocate for underserved students to make sure that they were getting the educational equity that they were entitled to. I got to be an advocate for employees to make sure that they were not being subject to discrimination or sexual harassment in the workplace. And it's really that work for the Department of Education that pulled me into the DEI space because I was responsible for an office that was responding and reacting to complaints of bad behavior. And I thought to myself, you know, as an organization, if we also invested time, energy, effort, resources into creating better work environments at the front end, you'll have less bad behavior on the back end. That front end work is all about policies, practice, change management, and that's what DEI is all about. And so I went back to, to Cornell and got my certifications uh, in DEI, and then created the first diversity management office to really look at those proactive steps that our organization could take to create better work environments. And it's that work, starting to do that diversity work that pulled me into uh, state government. I was appointed by the governor to be New York State's chief diversity officer, where I got to expand uh, my scope of responsibilities to a statewide footprint, really looking at everything from ensuring economic equity for minority and women-owned businesses to, again, transformation of the state workforce. And uh, after leaving the governor's office, I then went into healthcare, which, again, has a heavy uh, DEI component to it. And you look at factors like health equity and ensuring that communities are getting the resources that they need, especially at a time of COVID and vaccination. So I was heavily immersed in that space. And then almost two years ago, I was presented with this opportunity to come to Burlington and really focus on the needs of diverse customers, to focus on making sure we're supporting the workforce of the future and leveraging all of my previous DEI experience and my passion around advocacy, bringing that into the retail space. So it has been a fascinating journey, but my passion 20 plus years later for advocacy has not waned. Yeah. So what made you think, you know, retail, that's the next industry that could really use my advocacy work to, to kind of change the sphere of how we look at DEI? Why retail? Well, I, I think that answer is a couple of things. Retail as an industry is all about innovation. Retail is all about what's new, what's on trend, what's different. So much of that is responsive to what is going on around us. So again, if I want to connect with a customer, I need to know everything about that customer, their background, their experiences, their history, their culture, their language. All of that has a DEI component to it. And the fact that retail as an industry thrives off of getting that information and then using that information to be responsive to the customer needs is something that was very exciting 
to me. Um, and, and quite selfishly, I have always found success across these different industries. Retail, again, as an industry, was just an exciting place for me to be. And Burlington, in particular, as an organization, really understood, again, how wedding these best practices would help us drive our business as we continue to grow and expand. So it was the perfect marriage um, of interest and passion and expertise uh, that I was able to bring to this role. Yeah, that's great. So you said you started two years ago, so that would have been right around COVID. I'm wondering if you could tell me some of the biggest challenges that you faced when you first got to Burlington. I mean, you mentioned um, you know, you got a team right away and and the the company was more than willing to to figure out and help you uh, get what you needed in order to, to form that team and, and make some big changes. So what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced when you were just starting out there? So I think a couple of things, um, like many organizations, you know, we recognize that the workforce of the future is evolving. The workforce of the future will be more diverse demographically from a race and ethnicity standpoint than ever before. Generationally, we're going to have multiple generations and we do have multiple generations in the workforce. And the workforce of the future is going to have different wants, needs, desires, expectations from work than they ever had before. So we must constantly be focused on creating, again, those supportive and equitable institutional structures and creating those environments where they can grow, they can thrive, they're being supported and respected and engaged in a way that really matters to them. So that was a lot of what I focused on very early on. And then when you overlay, to, to your point, the fact that COVID um, ha has caused such disruption in the way that we work, you look at our workplaces, the workplaces of the future are evolving with virtual work and hybrid work impacting the way of work. And so really figuring out in that space, how do we continue to again, recruit, retain, develop top talent when so much of the way we work has been uh, upended. So that has been a lot of our focus in the time that I've been here, looking at again, our workforce, looking at expectations, looking at how we rethink and reimagine so many things that we previously took for granted. But again, that's the exciting opportunity because in that reimagining of what work is, what our organization is, what do we mean to the communities that we serve, that's where DEI starts finding its footing because pulling those DEI levers can really help you advance across all of those spaces. Well, and to that point, I'd love for you to share some kind of specific initiatives that you spearheaded at Burlington that you're really proud of in the last two years. Sure. So, so I guess foundationally, one of the things that um, we were able to do and do well very quickly was rethink kind of how we were approaching DE&I. And so in 2021, we evolved what had been an inclusion and diversity action plan into a truly comprehensive DE&I strategic plan for the entire enterprise. And as we did that, we looked at spanning across all of those different facets that were going to be impacted, everything from our workforce and talent to how we create inclusive and equitable environments, to how we train and raise awareness um, of our, our workforce to how we engage around products and vendors and supplier diversity, 
And lastly, what do we mean and how do we support the communities that we serve? So that those are the five pillars of our strategic plan. However, in addition to creating a plan, you have to really create an, a governance structure that ensures that you're able to execute the plan across the enterprise. So we created an executive leadership council made up of our most senior leaders who help guide our activities and, and really serve as a catalyst for change. We created diversity councils that target the different areas of our organization, everything from stores to corporate, to merchandising, to distribution centers, because the work as it manifests across those spaces will be different. We wanted to make sure we were tailoring our activities to meet the needs of the uh, particular parts of our organization. So we created that as part of our governance structure. And then lastly, we launched associate resource groups. These are groups of associates who have raised their hand and said, I wanna help amplify the voices across our organization and make sure that those voices and that feedback is integrated in the DEI work that we do going forward. So in creating this strategic plan and creating a DEI team and layering on a governance structure to help support it and then pulling in our key partners throughout the enterprise, what we have created is a DEI ecosystem where this work is perpetual, it is substantive, and ultimately it will be sustainable across time over the next few years. Yeah, that's that's a huge undertaking. Thank you for walking us through that. That's great. So as as other retailers are listening to this, what is, you know, one one step that they can take right now? You know, you mentioned the the DEI ecosystem. How do they what's one thing that they can do right now to get themselves on the right path to be able to to get to to where you are with with this kind of DEI ecosystem? Sure. I, I think one of the things is to move away from um, and, and very well intended organizations um, can still end up making this mistake, move away from a focus solely on DE&I and its altruistic form. Yeah. Being, this is the right thing to do. This is good work. Um, we feel good about it. Right. There is an altruistic component to DE&I, but more importantly, there is a business a perspective and a, a business directive associated with everything that we do. So really looking at DEI from a strategic business imperative standpoint, how is this going to help us drive good business? How is this going to help us when it comes to sustainability in the future? How is this going to help us as a growth, uh, business growth enabler? You know, at the end of the day, business terms and a business way of looking at the benefit of DEI um, is what organizations really need to be moving towards. Because again, if, if DEI stays in the altruistic realm in isolation, then it is always marginalized within an organization. It's not a key component to what the organization needs and must have going forward. So I would just, um, you know, when it comes to what organization should keep as top of mind, this work is so much more than altruism. This work is so much more than responding to a moment in time, like, you know, a post uh, event that happens and we, we have to respond in the moment. This work is ingrained. This work is ongoing in order for it to really create transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So I know that um, mentorship has been really important to you. And so I'm wondering if you could share some of the best practices that you've had for being a good mentor. Maybe you've you've had mentors in your life who have really resonated with you and, and maybe you could share some of their best practices. 
Sure. So, um, yes, I, I have both been mentored by some amazing, dynamic um, women and men along the way professionally, and I have served as a mentor, uh, both professionally, I, I participate in uh, women's leadership mentorship programs. I am a mentor as part of a CEO Action, their uh, mentorship program. I mentor high school students as part of Judge Judy's Her Honor program. I've been doing that for about eight years. And what I can say um, helps to make a really good mentor, number one, be present. Mentorship and taking on uh, the onus to really help guide either a young person um, or someone professionally is an awesome responsibility. So be present in that responsibility. Make the time um, to really engage in a way that is going to help advance someone's career or advance them as a student on their career journey, because you never know how much your time will make a difference in someone else's life. So being present. Uh, the second is just being authentic. You know, what people want is authentic connection. They want authentic interaction. So when I show up as a mentor, people understand everything about me, not just the titles, right? Not, not just the current positions, but my struggles, my challenges, my fears, my journey, the good and the bad, the times when I was highly successful and the times when I failed, but how I was able to fail forward and learn from those experiences. So what people want is really authentic engagement in these interactions. And then lastly, just being a really, really good cheerleader. You know, people sometimes, you know, even the voice in your own head, can be that negative um, perspective that holds you back. Sometimes people need to be reminded about how awesome they are, about the fact that the world is their oyster and that they can achieve. And even if it looks unattainable for them to, to shoot for it. And so just being a really good cheerleader for me, all of those are part of really good mentorship. And again, this is speaking about mentorship from the levels of younger people to people who are well on their way professionally. We all need that support, um, be it a mentor or a sponsor. And I've enjoyed serving in both capacities. Yeah. How would you recommend that women in retail kind of get started in mentorship? If they're seeking a mentor, what's the best way to approach their mentor and say, hey, I really need you know your help with this? Well, I think I think it's a couple of things that that they can do. I think being bold, you know, oftentimes we feel that, hey, you know, I could not approach this individual or I can't ask for assistance because it'll be a sign of either weakness or there might be some embarrassment associated with being rejected. Being bold has never served me in, in a way that was hurtful professionally. Being bold has always been additive. Um, even if the answer I got wasn't the answer that I necessarily was looking for, having the courage to invest in your own success means having the courage to, to reach outside of your comfort zone and to reach out to those who really represent your values. If you have a leader and whatever facet of their leadership style is resonating with you, to simply reach out to say, I'd love to learn more about that. If you have the time, could we sit and connect even over coffee for you to share some insight? I am someone who is ambitious. I want to grow within this organization. I want to make sure I'm adding those skills and attributes and competencies that will help me be a successful leader. And I see those same skills and, and competencies reflected in your leadership style. Would you mind taking the time to share some of that with me? And so I think you, you figure out your, your entry point 
and and you know you build from there but you will get nothing if you are not bold enough to take those chances and bet on yourself yeah i hear bold and i also think confidence do you think that that those two go hand in hand is is bold a synonym for confidence here absolutely absolutely and and i i, I would say confidence and competence right those two go hand in hand we have all seen um whether it's colleagues or, or others in the workplace who are supremely competent but they don't have the competence to back it up if you have done your homework if you are competent in your space then that helps breed that confidence as you walk into any room as you walk into any meeting as you engage with anyone from the lowest level at the organization to the most senior leadership you have the confidence because you have invested in building up your competence around whatever area of business you are responsible for so absolutely they go hand in hand yeah i love that so a lot of advice already shared but i'm wondering if you could close with some uh, another piece of advice that you would give you know the next generation of female retail leaders who are really just looking to to make an impact in their career Absolutely. I think um, having professional courage, right? Having the courage to, to stand up and speak out about issues that matter, finding your own voice, finding your own intestinal fortitude um, when it comes to how you show up to the workplace, I think is really, really, really going to be key, um, especially for those who are interested in, in, in ascending to leadership positions. Also, um, building up your cultural intelligence. So again, the leader of the future is not going to be the leader of the past. They're not going to lead with titles. They're not going to lead by being brash and, 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 you know, proclamations. I am the boss, boss, do as I say. That's not what leadership of the future is going to look like. It's going to be about you creating psychological safety for your teams. It's about you creating this sense of being a mission-driven, purpose-driven organization. It's going to be about you investing and developing people so they can be their best selves. All of these are about cultural intelligence. And so building that up as part of your skills and your tools and your toolkit as a leader are going to be more critical than ever when we look at all that, all the disruption, all of the change that's going to happen in many organizations. So if they want to have an impact, really look across those spaces, professional courage, professional agility, having the ability to ebb and flow with the changes in business and building up their own cultural intelligence. Building up their own, their cultural intelligence. What's one, one or two ways that you would recommend we do that? Sure, I can. Well, it's interesting. So there are usually six competencies around cultural intelligence that people focus on. Um, and, and, you know, you can always Google this and look it up. I'll talk about just a few that I think are, are key. Um, one is your awareness of your own bias. Being aware of your own bias and finding out how to root that out again, it, it's a huge leadership competency. I tell people early on in my career, um, especially when I was still practicing law, I would hire people into roles. And if someone came in and they were an attorney or they had gone to law school, I automatically had an affinity towards that candidate. I automatically liked them because I was a lawyer. And so there was a sense of connection that I felt 
for that individual. And so um, the way I treated them in that engagement was very different than the way I treated a candidate who didn't have a background in law. That was a bias that I had. And I had to have someone call me out on it before I recognized, you know what, you're right. I'm being deferential to this particular candidate for this particular reason, instead of focusing on their talents, on their experience, on their relevant background, my bias was leading my decision-making. And so going forward, I implemented panel interviewing. So it wasn't just Mecca making the decision. We had multiple people weighing in. I made sure that we focused on the core competencies of the role for the candidate. And that helped me get away from my affinity towards people who came from a similar background. And so that skill, just being aware of your own bias will cause you as a leader to make sure you're hiring the right talent and the top talent, that you're being equitable in your decision making, that you're promoting and developing people in a way that really speaks to what they bring to the table, not some sense of affinity or like-mindedness that you have. Because as one of my uh, team members always likes to say, you know, the, the saying that great minds think alike is a good thing is really problematic. It's the beautiful kind of tension from great minds thinking differently that really drives innovation on a team or within an organization. So that's just one example of really looking at competency that leaders can build, and that's their cognizance of their own bias. Yeah. Well, Mecca, thank you so much. I'm so glad we got you on here because that has been such great advice, and I hope that the people listening, I uh, really resonated with them. Um, and thank you so much for, for sharing your career journey with us. Oh, Marie, thank you so much. I think these are such important conversations and the opportunity to kind of weigh in and share um, what has been my experience is something I am always excited about. So thank you for the opportunity today. Thanks for listening. For more information on this podcast, please check out our podcast channel page at womeninretail.com slash podcasts for show notes. Women in Retail Talks is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Make sure to subscribe on our podcast channel page as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few moments to rate and review. To learn more about Women in Retail and become a member of this amazing community, visit womeninretail.com. Thanks, and until next time, this has been Women in Retail Talks.